the buffs 85% casualties the, the 48 the second 48 only 76% casualties this was a firefight like no other at Albuera both armies stood for hours literally at short range pouring sort of volleys into each other Welcome to the Redcoat History Podcast, the show for military history geeks. This is a podcast and YouTube channel dedicated to the study of the British military and its battles throughout history. We're currently on season three, which is a deep dive into the Peninsula War fought in Portugal, Spain and France between 1808 and 1814. In past episodes, we've covered the battles of Roliza, Vimeiro, Porto, Talavera and Fuentes de Onoro. If you aren't already subscribed, then please do so. And also sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com newsletter, as I'll be sharing a PDF of the transcript of this episode. Today I'm joined by three experts on the Peninsula War to talk about the battle that is considered to be the bloodiest fought during the entire war, Albuera. It's a battle full of drama and controversy. There were terrible mistakes, multiple colours were taken, entire battalions were virtually wiped out. Reputations were made and lost during this terrible battle fought 210 years ago today on the 16th of May 1811. Let's meet today's guests. Marcus Beresford here. I'm a historian living in Ireland and a distant relative of Marshal William Carr Beresford. I've been long interested in the Napoleonic War, although my earlier uh, work as a historian was about the Irish diaspora in the 18th century, the boys and girls who went to France and joined the men in particular, of course, or the men only, who joined the French services. My name's Mark Thompson. I am an independent historian, which is a, a posh way of saying an amateur. I've been interested in military history for 40 years, and my first published book on the subject, which was in 2002 was on the Battle of Albuera. So I've always had a bit of a soft spot for this battle. It was revised in 2015 and I'm very excited because this year there should be a Spanish language edition of my book on Albuera coming out. Uh, and I think that's a first for all the English language versions. So uh, it's something that I, I, I still look at and still absolutely fascinated by. Mark Scrib, I'm currently researching more the Battle of Porto uh, because I'm the manager, as time of corrective recording, uh, the manager of Apsley House and Wellington Arch, the Duke of Wellington's home in London uh, since 1816. Uh, but yeah, the Battle of Albuquerque is a really important one for the Peninsula War. Though the Duke of Wellington himself is not present, I think it's a, a fascinating battle and B, at the back of my mind is always a bit of a what if the commanders were changed and the circumstances were changed uh, and it makes up I think just the Peninsula War is a subject that we talk about a lot but actually in the scheme of history I think always deserves more study and recognition and I just always want to bring the Peninsula War to the forefront really. As you'll recall from the previous two episodes, the British and Portuguese armies had spent much of 1810 on the defensive in Portugal. The incredible engineering feat, known as the Lions of Torres Vedras, had stopped the French invasion force under Marshal André Massena from occupying Lisbon. 
Massena's troops had been forced to withdraw to Santarem, and then, eventually in March 1811, ragged and starving, his army had retreated back to Spain. It was a brilliant strategic victory by the Allied commander Wellington. But even as Massena's army was on the run, the French were still a major threat elsewhere in the country. Marshal Jean de Dieu Soule and his army advanced from Sevilla to open a second front, besieging the fortified border city of Badajoz and threatening Lisbon from the south. Wellington realised there was a need to split his army in order to face this developing threat. By rights and seniority, the commander of this force should have been General Rowland Hill, but he was sick and unable to take up the command. Wellington therefore turned to Marshal William Carr Beresford, the Anglo-Irish commander of the Portuguese army. It was made clear to Beresford that this was only ever a temporary command. This was not, this was pending Hill's return. Now, of course, by the time Massena retreated from Santarem at the beginning of March, the 5th of March, um, uh, Hill wasn't back in Portugal and uh, Beresford was therefore ordered by Wellington to take the 2nd Division, the 4th Division, and the Hamilton's Portuguese Division south to relieve the siege of Badajoz. So that's the background, I think. Beresford really needs to be given credit for the beforehand in 1808, 1809, 1810, where he reforms the Portuguese army. And Beresford made them into a really effective corps, taking some British officers, but actually keeping a real central nucleus of Portuguese officers and Portuguese men who were, they were skeptical about their reliability and they proved themselves very early on to be, be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with British veteran regiments and do an incredibly good job. And I think that a lot of that credit comes down to Beresford. I mean, the Portuguese spirit as well, you've got to give them a lot of points, but Beresford's admin command you know, administration behind the scenes, which is not an interesting topic, but really, really important when it comes down to campaigning. Do you get the sense there was a bit of reticence and that he, he actually preferred his job kind of, you know, helping the Portuguese to rebuild their army and so on? Well, I think he was fully committed to the rebuilding, but I think uh, you've touched on a good point here, which is a, a desire for command. And it, certainly if you look at... Uh, events a few years earlier after the retreat from La Coruña, when Beresford was back in England, he was offered the command, the military command of Jamaica, and he turned that down uh, because he felt it would be a backwater and he wouldn't be involved in serious fighting. Likewise, when he was governor of Madeira, he champed at the bit and wrote to Castlereagh repeatedly looking for a more active command. There sure. was actually, um... Another command in between Hill becoming sick and Beresford taking over. Mm -hmm. in, initially, uh, the senior commander on the ground, which was William Stewart, commanding the 2nd Division, took over. This was the very early days in January 1811. Within days, Wellington was writing back to him, uh, yeah. and I'm paraphrasing, comments like, thank you for all your proposals on attacking the French. That is not what I asked you to do, and that is not why you're there. Yeah. Uh, and this, this happened over three or four letters. By the end of the month, Stuart had moved a little bit from wanting to attack everything in sight to actually sending a bunch of letters where he was actually quite concerned that he didn't actually um, know what was going on and was concerned that he, he wasn't in control. So I, I think you know, 
Beresford, I think, was seen very much as a, as a stabilising influence, where Stuart, who we will talk about quite a bit later uh, when we get to the battle, uh, whilst they initially took over, I think quite rightly, Wellington judged he was not the right stability that was needed for an independent bank uh, command on the south bank of the Tagus. The fortress of Badajoz, which Beresford and his troops were now rushing to relieve, should have been virtually impregnable. It had huge walls and a strong Spanish garrison. So what happened next? When all this started, sort of in March 1811, as Massena was retreating, Badajoz was still in Spanish hands. Mm. Uh, Sul had, had started a siege in, in end of February, early March. And Wellington was desperate to get some forces down there to relieve it before Badajoz was lost to the French. So when Beresford set off, he was, he was going to relieve the fortress of, of Badajoz. It was only whilst he was traveling south that the message came up that Badajoz had fallen. So this was entirely unexpected. Wellington did not expect to lose the fortress. Uh, and obviously the loss of it had a major impact. Why this mattered was that Wellington's plan for 1811 when Massena retreated was to move north and retake the northern Portuguese border around Almeida and Theodad Rodrigo. But that was done on the basis that he had full control of the southern entry points at uh, Badajoz and Elvash. So the loss of Badajoz completely messed up his strategy for, uh, for 1811. And that's why the attempt was made to retake it immediately. I I'm guessing Beresford was coming south with, with something around 15,000 troops, quite substantial, but, but not a big army. The French in the area of Badajoz were significantly less than that. As soon as Badajoz had fallen, Marshal Sue went back heading towards Seville, because even in the few weeks he'd been away, he was getting worrying reports about you know, the, the Spanish guerrillas, the Spanish armies starting creeping into the areas that were notionally under his control. So Sue rapidly moved south and left several thousand Frenchmen in the area. So they were outnumbered at that point. There was a very good chance that Sewell would not come to re the relief of Badajoz if the Allies tried to retake it. So I, I think you know, part of Wellington's thinking was that if Sewell doesn't come north, we can retake Badajoz quickly and recover the southern entry point and continue with the main strategy. As we all know, that didn't happen and Sewell did come north again. Uh, and then we get into sort of like the difficulties of the resources around the siege of Badajoz. But I think initially it was Spanish held, it was lost. And I think Wellington was hoping that Sewell wouldn't come back, having decided that what he was doing at Seville was much more important that, than helping any other French army. What were Wellington's instructions at this point? What did, what did he want Beresford to do and to achieve? Well, in a nutshell, his instructions were, don't fight a battle unless you think you can win it. Here was Beresford leading an allied army which contained a very large Spanish element, 14,000 Spaniards, 10,000 British, which includes, of course, the King's German Legion, and approximately 10,000 Portuguese. And this was the first time, the first battle in the Peninsular War, where all armies had fought under a unified command. 
at Talavera, we all know the difficulties because the Spanish were doing their thing uh, and Wellington had to suffer that. The Spanish army was notoriously badly led and had a terrible reputation amongst the British. Some of that was deserved, but much of it was unfair. For the siege of Badajoz and the subsequent Battle of Albuera, a number of Spanish generals with their respective contingents agreed to fight alongside the British and Portuguese. But who would be in overall command? Beresford got on very well with Castaños. Um, Castaños had a relatively small force, I think it was about 3,000. It w wasn't uh, the size of Blake's army, which was 8,000 odd. And then Ballesteros weighed in with another few thousand to make up the, the, the Spanish 14,000. He got on very well with Castaños. And um, <clears throat> I suppose that what happened, of course, when Wellington came down to inspect uh, Badajoz and to look at a potential battle site at Albuera on the 20th of April. He gave Beresford very specific instructions, both regarding the siege of Badajoz and the fighting of the battle. And he said, don't start the siege of Badajoz until you've got a written undertaking from the Spaniards to do it as I want it done. And Beresford actually only got that written undertaking on the 8th of May, the day he started the siege. And now there were other reasons why the siege was delayed, not least because they had no siege equipment, they had no guns, they had to get old guns as they got them from Elvash, some were 200 years old and split almost on first use. So there were all those logistical problems as well. But Wellington gave Beresford very, very specific instructions, just like he gave him instructions with regard to where to fight the battle. And with regard to the command of the battle, of course, that was a very serious problem. Because first of all, here were the Spaniards weighing in with 14,000 men. And why was a Spaniard not going to command this army? Secondly, Blake was a captain general of the Spanish uh, nation and had a claim, as did Castaños, to, to lead these armies. And Wellington read it up with Castaños and he actually offered him the command and Castaños was very magnanimous and magnanimous and said, no, I think Beresford should command. And that's made life a lot easier for both Beresford and for Wellington. Castaños's gesture to say the, the commander with the largest army would command overall, which gave Beresford command was the thing that made it work. I, I wonder whether there was a, a subtext not printed where Wellington had said, if Beresford doesn't get command, we ain't fighting. Because I, I can't think of an occasion where Wellington would have let a significant <laughs> proportion of Ang Anglo-Portuguese troops fight under a commander of which he had very little confidence. So... I, I just wonder whether there was something else going on that nobody's ever really talked about, but I don't think the battle would have happened if certainly Blake had stood his ground. And Castanios, I'm not sure. Well, Wellington liked him, but like is not necessarily the same uh, as rated him. Uh, La Romana, who died uh, very unhelpfully in January 1811, Wellington said he was a great guy. I got on really, really well with him. But then sort of me paraphrases, has, but actually he was bloody useless as a commander. So I, I, I just wonder about whether there's some other dynamics going on here that if Beresford wasn't given the command, I'm not sure the battle would ever have happened. At the time, um, 
in the peninsula, it was very difficult for the Anglo-Allied army, as it was, to get enough manpower. It was all, Wellington was always saying he was short of things, especially artillery and cavalry. And basically, he could not afford the losses. Britain didn't have a conscription system like France did. It could not replace men, had so many in sick by being in a foreign theatre, just by by state of being in Portugal and Spain, men went down sick with fevers and dysentery and all sorts. And actually, just by fighting a battle, he just could not afford those losses if it wasn't going to be a victory. And he that's what he was really trying to avoid, was any sort of decisive loss where he just couldn't back it back up, especially at this point where he's trying to fight a siege and a manoeuvre and slash blocking campaign down to the south really split Wellington, whereas normally he did try to keep his force. And that doesn't even count for Cadiz, which is a whole separate uh, affair, mostly under Graham. As is always the case in war, logistics were key. Badajoz was a tough nut to crack and Beresford's army did not have the firepower it required to break that tough shell. Beresford was stuck with the problem, where can I find a siege train quickly to, to, to uh, besiege Badajoz? And just putting a, a logistical context in place, for the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo in January 1812, they started planning moving the siege train in May 1811. It was six to seven months to move a siege train up. You cannot magic up a siege train in a couple of weeks uh, across the sort of terrain in the Iberian Peninsula. So they, they effectively raided Elvash, which was only about 15 miles away, using guns from there. Many of them were very old. 10th of May was the day when Sewell left Seville heading for Badajoz. The actual operational part of the, the first siege of Badajoz was three days. You can't do anything in a siege in three days. You know, they, they only got started sort of long enough to then have a much bigger job of taking everything away again. The, the thing that mattered here is nobody knew whether Sewell would come back. Had he not come back and you suddenly had weeks to work on the siege, yeah. it's a different ball game. Wellington's problem was usually he was trying to do them against time. And so if Sewell hadn't come back, Badajoz would have fallen. As Marshal Sewell marched his forces north to relieve Badajoz, Beresford had a big decision to make. Should he fight? The decision he made was controversial. Famously, the great Peninsular War historian William Napier felt that it was a grave mistake. When um, news of Sewell's departure from Sevilla uh, reached uh, Beresford, I think on the 12th of May, and it was uh, not only that he's left, but he's moving at speed, uh, Beresford uh, moved to have this meeting, which took place at Valverde on the 15th of May. And Napier reserves his most intense criticism of Beresford for his decision actually to fight. Uh, it, it goes way beyond whatever he says about the conduct of the battle. And he says Beresford was right to raise the siege because otherwise he was going to be between a, a rock and a hard place when Soult came up to him. But Wellington, remember, had said, if you've got the strength uh, sufficient to fight a general action and maintain the siege, then fight. Um, now, Beresford was very uncertain, and that is, it's, it's really clear this, Beresford was very uncertain about whether he should fight or not. And I think he was predisposed not to fight, but retreat across 
the Guadiana River. The Guadiana River, for, for those who are not familiar with it, uh, flows past Badajoz and just past Badajoz takes a very sharp right angle south and runs all the way down to the Atlantic Ocean. And Beresford had a tete du pont at Juramenia on the Guadiana, which he'd uh, built, it was a trestle bridge. The original boat bridge had been swept away. And we're talking about a time of year when the, the river was still in a considerable flood. And he had a fortified tete du pont Juramenia. And he could use this to retreat into Portugal. Now it was gonna be difficult because getting a, a large army across, 34,000 into Portugal was going to be a, a fighting retreat. But in a way, the decision was taken out of his hands because when they, discussed, when they discussed the tactics that they might employ, Blake made it very clear that he wasn't going to retreat to Portugal. And likewise, Benjamin Durban made it very clear that Beresford reckoned that Blake could never get back down the Guadiana down to the relatively safe, relative safety of Cadiz again. And um, so Blake had put this gun to Beresford's head and said, if you go back into Portugal, I'm going to stand and fight Sultan. Now we know that Blake's force was 14,000. Coming up against them were either 23 or 24,000 Frenchmen, including a very large and effective cavalry contingent. Blake was going to be wiped out. So in a sense, the decision was taken out of Beresford's hand. However, and this is really interesting, Napier flies a kite, which, well, he was more than a kite. He says that in fact, Beresford's decision was forced by the British officers in, the, in, in his command. The officers of the second and fourth division who were really upset that they had not had a share of the glory at either Busaco or following Massena on his retreat into Northern Portugal and Spain, that they were itching for a fight and that they put serious pressure on Beresford. I don't think Beresford had any choice. And some of his letters, even before the battle and certainly after saying, you know, yeah. this is not what I want to do. You know, I, I, I think we should be retreating, but Blake having refused to retreat, I cannot, you know, sort of uh, politically, morally, ethically, whatever, leave him to be destroyed. So I think Beresford had no choice other than to fight the battle. So the decision is made to fight the battle why, why Albuera? What was, what, what was it that made them decide this is the place? Well, I, I think you know, the, the main reason why they decided to fight there, because Wellington said we're going to fight there. Wellington did say that the best place to fight a battle if you choose to fight one is Albuera. He specifically named it. If you look at it, it's on the main royal road from Seville to Badajoz. So it's on the main road. It's also in the central position so that if, if the French tried to go to either east or west, there are lateral roads that Beresford could use. Almost every road in the area went through Albuera. So, yeah, there is a great sense in that Albuera is the right place to, to fight the battle. Can you sort of explain to us what, what the sort of terrain was like around Albuera? Yeah, I, I think the, 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 the most important thing to remember is, is, is the key point. It was good cavalry country. And, and that needs to be borne in mind uh, when you look at the battle. In, in a more general sense, um, the, the, the battlefield was in the north-south plain. Um, Albuera town was towards the left of, of the, the, the north-south area, the north-south area. There was a river running from Albuera 
effectively where, where the battlefield is, running through the middle of the battlefield. On the Allied side, it was very low rolling hills. So you could get a reverse slope, but you, know, you really were talking several feet was, was the sort of reverse slope. So you know, the classic Wellington sort of features were there, but it was rolling hills, not big hills with, with drops on either side. However, on the, the French side, again, it was rolling hills, not very high, but they were covered in woodland. So there was some cover there, which again is an important feature on, on the battlefield. So overall, if, if you stand on the ground to the north of Albuera, you can see the whole battlefield pretty much. Most of it even today is still open. So this was a very open area over which this battle was going to be fought. The, the French advance guard had approached the, the, these hills overlooking Albuera the night before the battle. So you know, the French had an opportunity to, to look at, at the potential battlefield. They could see some Allied troops, but not all of them. That's because some of them were on the reverse slope. But more importantly, a rather large chunk of them, like all the Spanish, hadn't arrived at this point. Uh, and most of them didn't arrive till either during the night or the early hours of the morning. So, but you know, Sult could see British troops in Albuera town. Sult could see British cavalry and, and some troops uh, a number of kilometers to the south of Albuera. So you, know, you, you get a reasonable idea of where the troops are gonna be for, for what you can see, even if you can't see them all. Sewell had, had you know, some good features as a general. He was actually very good at the strategy side, maybe not so much at, at the operational side. So Sewell's plan for the day was very good. Um, a feint down the main road, uh, you know, which goes through Albuera itself, and then using the cover of the trees, do, do a long uh, sweep to his left or the Allied right, and then come in along the ridge of hills uh, straight on, onto the Allied right. Sewell's other argument was that he believed that the Spanish under Blake had not arrived and they would come from the south. So if he swept round to, to, to the Allied right, he would place himself between the, the Anglo-Portuguese and the Spanish army. So the actual plan for the battle overall was very good. In terms of assembly of the two armies, uh, Beresford had arranged with Blake that the Spanish army would be up in Albuera by midday, uh, by 12 o'clock on the 15th. They didn't appear. And as Marcus said, they came in in dribs and drabs during the night. Um, I think the main body um, probably only came in about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, sunrise, I think, was shortly after 4, 4 o'clock, about 4.15, 4.20 that morning. And I find it... it almost inconceivable that Sult didn't realize the Spaniards were there. There was a hell of a commotion going on because the Spaniards didn't know where to go and assemble. Originally, because the Spaniards were, weren't there, Beresford had had to put his cavalry on his right the previous day, just as a precaution. So he had to move those off and the, move the Spaniards in. So uh, that was taking place in daylight and they weren't even ready, really, when the battle began. So I, I just find Sult's claim that he wasn't aware that the Spanish were there um, just fanciful. I agree. Yeah, it, it seems very fanciful to 
think that he didn't see them. But so is there likely that he's just dismissing them? And you're going, I'm not quite sure the motivations why, because Salt was a very good tactician. Salt claimed they weren't there in his report after the battle that he'd just lost. He was looking for reasons why it, it hadn't gone as, as he thought it should. The morning of Thursday the 16th of May was dull and overcast. Now that the Spanish troops had arrived and taken up their allocated position on the right flank, the Allied army under Marshal Beresford was ready for battle. At approximately 8am, the French began their assault. A French brigade under Godinot came down the main road and started attacking uh, the town of Albuera, followed by a heavy presence of French cavalry. So everything at this point was going exactly as you know, the, the Allied army expected. Troops were started being moved, Allied troops were starting being moved towards Albuera town uh, at the point when they started seeing the movement of French troops way off to the right, the Allied right. So you know, overall, Sul's plan up to this point had gone exactly as expected. And, and bear in mind, Sul's army was about 23,000. The vast majority of this ended up on the Allied right. When it was reported to Beresford that the French were moving round with this left hook to come in on, on the Allied right, uh, he tried to persuade, or he ordered, Blake to move part of his Spanish force round to face it. Blake was unwilling. He was unconvinced that this was the main attack. He, he thought this was just a feint in itself. And he was very unwilling. And Beresford then went off to move actually the Portuguese division, I think slightly closer to Albuera. And it was when he came back again, he realized that Blake hadn't really done what he'd been asked to do or was being very slow about it. Uh, eventually, of course, as we know, uh, Zayas, with the 4th Spanish Division, did move round to the right. Uh, he had the uh, Reales Guardias and the, uh, uh, I'm very proud to say it, the Regimenta de Irlanda and, <laughs> and, the, and the Walloon Guards as well. And he moved round and faced the French onslaught with just his, his own division for a long time. Now, when they began to get the, and they fought very bravely, I, I think we must say that. I, I think everybody agrees, Zayas's troops fought very, very bravely. Eventually, they were being overcome by sheer numbers. And then, of course, we arrive at this critical moment when Beresford orders Stuart uh, to move the second division forward, to bring it forward uh, and to, to get in the line and to relieve the Spaniards who would presumably move back through the line. And, um, well, it, it's difficult for us to say, but I think Stuart undertook the task in a, a fairly ad hoc way. Um, uh, you know, he started to move it battalion by battalion and it, it wasn't done properly. Um, Colborne's, Colborne's brigade was over on the left and it traditionally should have been on the right of Stuart's division. And he waited while Colborne brought his troops across. And Colborne was very concerned about the manner in which they were advancing and made representations to Stuart. Can I pause? Can I get my men in the proper defensive order? And Stuart said, no, just keep going, keep going. And, you know, I'd like Mark and Marcus to come in on this, but I think the only explanation is either Stuart was impulsive or else he feared that the situation was so bad 
that he needed to just get the troops into place. Stuart was the guy who initially took over for, from Hill, who spent the first couple of weeks of his command coming up with harebrained ideas to, to attack the French. Uh, I, I don't think he probably changed his spots or, or, or over the coming months. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a great fan of Stuart's behaviour on the day. I, I think it was close to irresponsible um, in open country. He knew there was pretty much the whole of the French cavalry was in the area. Visibility was appallingly poor, both because of the weather and all, all the, the smoke in the area. And, and, and to move his whole brigade sort of in line with no idea what's outside of it is, is well, hi history won't judge him well for what happened. So what happened? <laughs> what happened is probably one of the biggest disasters to happen to the British army and certainly probably the, the biggest disaster in, in the Peninsular War. And, and we have seen, set the scene quite nicely. We, we have a major firefight going on between uh, the French Fifth Corps uh, and up to this point, Zayas's sing single division, about 2,000 Spaniards were, were facing off against you know, 8,000 Frenchmen. So you know, th this was wonderful Spanish uh, sort of bravery. But Stuart's come up on the, um, the left-hand side of the French. Uh, so he's coming round the, the right hand of the Spaniards uh, 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 and wrapping round onto the flank of the French in line. So the, the front of his line would have been facing towards where the French were coming from. And in these undulations in the hills, you know, there, there was lurking a large number of French cavalry. The Tour Malberg, the French cavalry commander, seeing Stuart's uh, division and particularly Colborne's brigade coming in, knew he had to do something to stop it. And he launched uh, the, the, the nearest cavalry at it, which was the 600 troops of the Polish uh, Vistula Legion. So these were lancers. This was a new uh, breed of, of animal to the British troops. Along with them was the second French Hussars, possibly the 10th Hussars as well. Not quite sure that it gets a bit vague on who actually took part in the charge. Um, at this point, of course, the weather broke and they describe it as a hailstorm, certainly a thunderstorm. Visibility went to zero and several hundred um, French cavalry came down right on the flank of Colborne's brigade and effectively just rolled it up. You know, infantry in line from the side, particularly by lancers, uh, you, know, you, you cannot stand. And the third then the 48th, then the 66th, were, were effectively destroyed in a matter of minutes by, by this brilliant French charge. Again, it was excellent execution by the French. Um, maybe Stuart could have done this a different way, and Colborne was certainly, uh, had asked to, to protect his flank and had been told he couldn't. We must remember at this point that, that Colborne had been in command of that brigade for probably a whole three hours, maybe only two by the time this event happened, because the brigade commander was Lumley, who'd actually been taken off to take command of the British cavalry. So Colborne's first experience of command was not pleasant, shall we say. Marcus, can you just tell us what 
what was special about Lancers? Is that something you're able to talk about, about what Lancers were and why the British hadn't come across Lancers before? Yes, because this um, situation, it was really unusual, especially as the reports afterwards are quite horrific. Um, so the Lancers typically uh, a Polish regiment, though, uh, at this point, the Napoleon's army was actually recruiting from quite a wide part of Europe for Lancers. Um, they've got a pole arm, uh, so it gives them a lot more reach. It means that actually in close melee, unless they drop that pole arm, uh, they're actually at a disadvantage. They always said, you've got to get past the tip. Uh, but it gives them that reach, almost think like a night jousting, that they can come at you and hit them before uh, a cavalryman would with their sword. A British light cavalry or heavy cavalry could, would actually hold their sword out like a lance, but it's not going to have the, the length that um, a spear would effectively what a lance is, light. Uh, the British see this uh, and famously see it at Waterloo and adapt some of their dragoon regiments uh, from 1816 onwards into lances. Uh, but one of the big problems here with Colborne's division is that when the men are trying to, they don't get time to form proper squares really. So they form what would be called a rally square, which is basically a huddle. Everybody kind of huddles in, forms a bit of a scrum, and then faces out, bayonets out if fitted. And that gives them some protection. But because it's not a proper square, which is four ranks, two kneeling, two standing, uh, they don't have that protection of the distance. So when you're in a huddle, everyone's standing probably, or maybe just the odds kneeling, because uh, you don't have the discipline. So it means that the Lancers can get into that rally and, and stab, basically. There are several paintings of this, both by British artists and by French artists. The, the Lancers actually got right in near close to Beresford and his staff. And there is this painting which uh, appears of a Lancer uh, approaching Beresford and Beresford unhorsing him, literally. One of the things Beresford did have was massive physical strength. And um, he reputedly unhorsed this Lancer himself. And then the, the Lancer had the temerity to get up and try and stick him with his Lance again, whereupon he was dispatched by one of Beresford's ADCs. Colborne's brigade, including the 1st Battalion, 3rd Foot, a.k.a. the Buffs, the 2nd 31st and the 2nd 48th and the 2nd 66th, bore the brunt of this devastating cavalry charge. Casualties were horrific. The Buffs were almost completely wiped out. A number of colours were also captured, a disgrace for any regiment. But over the years, there's been some debate over exactly how many were captured by the French. The loss of the colours in the regiment, it, it, it is an emotional and military disaster for, for that particular unit. But at some points in the battle, the three regiments that were, that were destroyed, most of their colours were in enemy hands. So, you know, the, 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 this, you know, what was you know, the, the worst loss uh, in, in any battle in the Peninsula War. I believe four standards were taken. These were the, the, the colours of the 48th and the 66th. So this was the, the second and third regiment to, to, to be overwhelmed by, by the, the cavalry attack. The, the buffs is, where I think, where the confusion comes in, in, in that at one point in the battle, they had lost one of their colours. Their, their, their regimental colour was taken and was found later in the day by a, a, a soldier, an NCO, in, in one of the Fusilier regiments. Now, how it could get mislaid on the battlefield is, is somewhat bemusing. The, the other colour was, was where you get the, 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 the classic tales from Albuera about uh, uh, Matthew Latham, who, who 
defended the colour, not quite with his life, but he lost half an arm, he lost half a face. Uh, but in, in one of the lulls in, in, in the, the cavalry attacks, ripped the, the, the flag, the standard, off the flagpole uh, and shoved it in his tunic. And you know, the, the British view is that's what was uh, sort of found in, in, in his lifeless body at the end of the battle. So this is where the confusion comes around the, the buff standards. Now, I think possibly where the confusion comes from is whether you look at it from a, a, from a, a British perspective or a French perspective. In a British regiment, the, the, the colours are the flags. I know I'm not supposed to use that word, but it's that bit of silk and cloth, which is the colour of the regiment. It is stuck onto a bit of wood, which they carry round. In the French army, the, the, the standard of the unit is the eagle. That's the big brass thing on top of the, the wooden pole. The bit of cloth that's flying around is actually kind of not the important bit of your regiment, it's the eagle. So there's two different military perspectives here. To the British, the cloth is the important bit. To the French, the pole and what's on top of it is what is important. Now, the French claimed that they had taken the standards of the buffs, but they're talking about the, the flagpole, you know, the, 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 the fitting on the top of the flagpole and some fragments of cloth attached to the standard. Now, there's lots of other stories about the standards, about revolutions in France and, and uh, cathedrals being burned down and the rest of it. But that's, that's kind of my take, that the French took four pieces of cloth, which were the standards of the 48th and 66th. And at some point, the French had the flagpoles and some fragments of cloth from the buffs. That, that's my perspective. I, I, I'm happy to be challenged on it. But, but I think that's partially where, where some of the confusion comes from, just your perspective of, of what the heart and soul of the regiment actually is. The, the, the immediate aftermath of Colbourne's brigade being destroyed, um, you know, the, the, there was a bit in between that and Cole's advance, which was the remainder of Stuart's division did come forward and continue the firefight against the Fifth Corps, which is still standing at the bottom of the hill and has been by this point for probably more than an hour. Why eight and a half thousand Frenchmen would stand at the bottom of a hill when there's less troops shooting out from the top of the hill? It's just really difficult to fathom 200 years on. But th this firefight continued and the concern that's, that's building and Beresford is in the area watching all of this is, is that the remainder of the second division is now literally sort of being demolished in front of your eyes and something needs to happen. Otherwise, you know, the, the French are, are going to sort of gain the heights and potentially start rolling up the army. This is probably, it's, it's clouded with a bit of mystery, but this is probably the moment at which Beresford urged other Spanish regiments to get into the battle, and they wouldn't. And I think it's felt that these were the regiments that had suffered so horrendously at Gaborah against uh, the, against Sult at Gaborah on the 19th of February, that they were somewhat unwilling to fight. At this stage, it seems, uh, and I, I, I'm not really condoning it, that Beresford himself went off in search of Hamilton's Portuguese division. Why he went off himself, 
I don't know. But he was certainly trying to get Hamilton's uh, division to move across from the left further to the right. With Beresford temporarily unavailable while searching for the Portuguese, the right flank of the army was leaderless. The only fresh British division close at hand was Cole's 4th Division, which had only arrived on the battlefield that morning from Badajoz. Despite their proximity to the heavy fighting, Beresford hadn't wanted to use them, not yet at least. Cole was told not to move unless commanded to do so by Beresford. And I think that's the key. Cole was, Cole was covering between two high points, which, which covered the roads to Badajoz and the road to Valverde, which effectively was the road of retreat. That was the road that went to, to, to Duramenia, where the Allied bridge was across the Guadiana. So if Beresford had to retreat, that was the only way he could go. That's why it was so important to Beresford that that area was covered. So I think that that's key to why Beresford was looking for anybody other than the 4th Division to, to, to come and, and support the right flank. But with the battle in danger of being lost, 25-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Henry Harding stepped up and decided to take matters into his own hands. This, this, is, this was a, a subject of later dispute and letters and not, not quite threats of legal proceedings, but it went, went, went for a couple of rounds at least because um, Harding, who, who was on Beresford's staff, uh, was, was, went up to Cole and uh, allegedly uh, persuaded Cole to, to move the 4th Division down and to come around on, on the French left. And um, Rook, who was a, a colonel, also was with Harding and supported Harding that this is what had happened. Cole maintained he took the decision. I don't think it matters very much because I think, uh, I think Cole saved the day by moving down in the way he did in the echelon formation, which he did, and the way they dealt with both the French cavalry and later the French infantry, uh, I think saved the day. I think that the thing about Cole is from where he was based, he, he had some visibility and throughout mm. the battle, there were, there were constant comments from British soldiers and officers that they could see almost nothing because of the weather and the smoke. Because it was such a, you know, a, a wet, rainy day, there was probably low cloud, the smoke had nowhere to go. So visibility was incredibly poor. But at, at, at this point in the battle, Cole was certainly had some evidence of what, what was going on off to his right, um, where, where Stuart was. He, he'd had remnants of Colborne's brigade come back to him, trying to escape the cavalry. So he was fully aware of the disaster that had happened to Colborne's brigade. I think there was absolutely no doubt that Cole was itching to come forward. Most of his staff was it, were itching for, for the 4th Division to move forward. Uh, and I think, you know, looking at the whole situation, that the, the decision and the right decision was made. They could not afford to wait because the... The, the right flank of the Allied army were, was um, close to collapse and waiting could actually sort of end in defeat. Where was Beresford? I would also like to say, where was Blake? I would also like to say, where was Sewell at this point in the battle? They all seem to be fairly invisible. Now, the, the, the story that's generally accepted was that when Beresford couldn't get the Spaniards to move, 
he, he wanted to bring Hamilton's division forward. And for, for reasons that I think are lost in, in, in history, Beresford went himself. The, the, the general observation seems to be he had no staff officers left. So Beresford went himself. But then as, as Marcus Beresford has just said, we now have Harding and Rook, who are two members of Beresford's staff, wandering across to the fourth division to talk about it. So there's something doesn't quite add up in this story. But but I think you know, Beresford was looking for troops to come forward. I think absolutely the right thing to do. Whether Beresford and Harding and Rook weren't together, so they'd independently gone on different routes to try and look for a solution, is the only thing I can think of. Um, but Cole, without a doubt, he was the leader. He made the decision to, to move his troops. And I think the way he did it was, was absolutely masterful. He did talk with uh, Lumley, the commander of the British, the, the Allied cavalry, before he made the move. The Allied cavalry were much inferior in numbers and quality to the French, who were right in front of them. Cole advanced with his Fusilier Brigade on his left with a column on the, the left-hand end for protection against cavalry. The Portuguese Brigade advanced on his right, which eventually became Echelon as they moved forward. On the right of the Portuguese was a group of light companies in column to protect the right-hand end of the line. So you know, this is probably what Stuart should have done uh, earlier in the day. The French cavalry made a number of attacks on Cole as they advanced, particularly on the Portuguese, believing that the Portuguese wouldn't stand. And the, the French discovered that Portuguese advancing in line when they fire is an unpleasant experience. And having tried it a couple of times, the French actually moved off and did not try another attack. So th this was a, a well-executed plan throughout um, up to the, the, the point of contact. Now, Sewell was clearly somewhere in the area because he could see this happening and the uh, reserve for the French attack on the right was, was World's Division who, who were behind the Fifth Corps and they were diverted to uh, deflect Cole's advance and we got the second major or the third major firefight of the day forming between World's Division and the Fusilier Brigade. It was now that the battle became a brutal firefight, fought at close range with an intensity rarely seen during the Napoleonic era. Sergeant John Cooper of the 7th Royal Fusiliers later recalled, under the tremendous fire of the enemy, our thin line staggers and men are knocked about like skittles, but not a step backward is taken. Here our colonel and all the field officers of the brigade fell killed or wounded, but no confusion ensued. The orders were, close up, close in, fire away, forward. This is done. We are close to the enemy's columns. They break and rush down the other side of the hill in the greatest mob-like confusion. In a minute or two, our nine-pounders and light infantry gain the summit and join in sending a shower of iron and lead into the broken mass. We followed down the slope, firing and huzzaring, till recalled by the bugle. This was a firefight like no other, mainly because firefights tended not to last long because one side gave way. At Albuera, both armies stood 
for hours, literally at short range, pouring sort of volleys into each other. And that, that's what I think makes Albuera stand out for many other battles. We have, we have to remember, we're probably sort of early afternoon by this point, and this has been going on since probably nine, 10 o'clock at the latest. So this firefighting in various <clears throat> forms has been going on for a number of hours already. Uh, initially, the, the Spaniards uh, against Fifth Corps, who stood for well over an hour. Then we came, Stuart's division came up and after the destruction of Colborne's brigade, the other two brigades of the second division then continued this firefight against still the numerically uh, superior uh, fifth corps standing below them in, in, in the uh, cornfields. And then the, the third attack comes in with the Fusilier Brigade coming forward uh, and sort of starting again another massive firefight. Normally, of course, you know, the British, you know, they, they, they form line, they fire one, maybe two volleys, and then they, they, they charge with the bayonet. Um, what made them just stand there and keep swapping volley after volley with the French? What was the reasoning behind that? I think if you just look at the, the, the numerics, um, the, the, the Fifth Corps was about 8,000, 8,500 strong. The Spanish initially, their, their, their Zayas division was about 2,000. Yeah. The, the remainder of Stuart's division was less than 2,000. Would you want to charge downhill in, into a massive, rather upset Frenchman who, who outnumber you three or four or five to one when there's 3,000 French cavalry loitering around as well? Fair point. At this point in the battle with the Allied right involved in a desperate firefight, what was happening in the other sectors? Was the entire Allied line so heavily engaged? There's not much happening on the left of the Allied position. And uh, Hamilton's uh, injured, uh, the number of injured in Hamilton's division tells its own story. They had very little engagement. There was some artillery fire going to and fro across the, the river, but th that's about it. Of course, in the center, we've got the King's German Legion uh, desperately defending the village because that attack was being pressed forward. It may have only been a feint, but it was being pressed forward as well. Uh, and we know that uh, Stuart did at one stage before sending Colborne off to, uh, uh, to fight on the right, was trying to move some of Colborne's uh, division in to support the Germans. And then, so at this point then, the, the KGL are sort of quite heavily engaged in the village. The left flank, it's not too heavy. Coles in this horrific firefight uh, over on the British right flank. What, what's kind of happens next? What's the next uh, major development in the battle? I think really by this time you're getting towards the, the, the end of, of the battle in that um, really the, the, the French, you know, and primarily this is the Fifth Corps, who stood taking close-range musketry fire for a number of hours. You know, they, they did start wavering. And you know, to, you know, at the end of, of the, the firefight by Cole's division, which, remember, is fighting just uh, Verl's division, the second division is still shooting at 
the, the remains of Fifth Corps. And really at this point, I think that the, the French had just had enough with, with you know, really quite understandably. Uh, and you know, the order again, we have Harding coming in with his Superman cape on and boldly ordering everybody senior to him around to, to, yeah. to attack the French in charge. And what, whatever the rights of the, this is, you know, the, at this point, you know, the, the, the British advanced and you know, the French, you know, after hours of bombardment, gave way. So th this was the, the critical point in the battle where, where you know, the, the Fifth Corps and Verl were effectively all the French infantry. So when they gave way, apart from a, a, a tiny reserve, you know, the French army ha had given way on the battlefield. But there were other things going on at this point. The fact that the French had this superiority in cavalry enabled the cavalry to cover the French retreat. And uh, uh, the Allies may have been exhausted and too exhausted to follow anyhow, but uh, the cavalry, the French cavalry maintained its discipline, its formation and covered Soult's retreat uh, pretty effectively, I think. The ally, an, a second Allied attack would have been exceedingly costly. It would have had to be done by Spanish or Portuguese troops, which you know, was a risk because they, they, they weren't battle hardened the same way that a lot of, of the Allied troops, the, the British troops were. But Beresford, and I think quite rightly, just wouldn't have it. He, he, he wanted to stay where he was, consolidate his position on the battlefield uh, and you know, let the French decide what was going to happen next. And so the Battle of Albuera, a horrific slogging match of a battle, slowly fizzled out with both sides battered and exhausted. The British had held their ground, but had it been a victory? Yes, I think so. I think the Allies won. Soult had to retreat down to Sevilla. His army was seriously mauled and he'd failed to raise the siege of Badajoz. In fact, Beresford was able to send back the unused Portuguese division to resume the siege the very next day. So I think you can, and I think you need to see Albuera in a context with Fuentes de Honoro. And the fact is that, although it wasn't immediately clear, that after these two battles, the French had been driven out of Portugal, and apart from one small incursion in 1812, they weren't to return. So the theatre had moved from defending Lisbon uh, uh, to the Portuguese frontier and enabled Wellington to jump off into Spain in 1812. So it was a victory, but one won at a terrible cost. Had it been worth it, the casualty figures were horrific. The Allied casualties on the day were about 6,000. The French, anywhere typically between six and 8,000, anything up to 9,000, depending on who you read. Soult's first report said 2,800, which um, was a lie. If you look at something, you know, just, I, I picked a few other battles out at random. Salamanca, there was 5,000, oh, slightly over 5,000 casualties. So that was less. Uh, Talavera, 7,500. So that was more. Uh, the Siege of Badajoz in, in 1812 was yeah. just shy of 5,000 sort of allied casualties. So, but the, the difference you get to is the three I've just mentioned as a percentage of the army, Salamanca was about 10%. Talavera was about 15%, although the British proportion of that was nearer 30, which is pretty horrendous. 
Badajoz uh, was about 18% of the Allied army. So you know, the, the numbers move around a lot, but if you look at the 6,000 casualties at, at, at Albuera, uh, that was about 17% of the army. If you start breaking that down, the bulk of those casualties were British. So the casualties, and I'm talking killed and wounded here primarily, was 40%, 40%. The Spanish was about 9%, the Portuguese about four. But again, it, it remains unbalanced. If we look at the second division, Colborne's brigade, which was destroyed by the French, 69% casualties across the brigade. The buffs, 85% casualties. The, the 48th, the second 48th, only 76% casualties. The 66th, only 62. Even the second 31st that formed square and so weren't destroyed by the French, but then ended up in the firefight, had 40% casualties. Houghton's brigade, which actually took part in the firefight after, after the Colborne's brigade was destroyed, 62% casualties in the brigade. Uh, uh, the, the numbers are too dry, so we'll move on. Uh, Myers Brigade, the Fusilier Brigade in the 4th Division, 52% casualties. So the casualties in the British unit were utterly horrendous. But let, let's again go back to the Spanish for a second. Zayas took most of the casualties uh, in, in the, the Spanish army during the battle. Their, their, their casualties were 30%. 30% would be considered catastrophic mm -hmm. in any normal battle. So I think that says more than anything else that Zayas's troops stood their ground and fought well throughout the battle. Were the French any better? Fifth Corps, 3,000 out of 8,500, 30-35% casualties. They stood for three to four hours being shot at without a break. Uh, even Whirl, the, 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 the reserve on that side, 25% casualties. So, you know, th these are just horrendous numbers. And that's why Albuera tends to get the title of, of the bloodiest battle. It wasn't the biggest, but the proportion of casualties, uh, particularly in the British units, the, the, literally battalions were destroyed at Albuera, and some of them never really fought again by themselves. And certainly through most of 1811, they fought in provisional battalions where the remaining sort of soldiers were grouped together with other battalions to form something like a workable force. So that's why Albuera always has the word bloody attached to it. Mark has hit it on the head. Um, it's because of these horrific losses in the British regiments that it's highlighted for us. And when you think that the buffs lost 85% of their strength at Albuera, that's a, a really shocking number. And no other regiment, I think, and Mark may correct me, suffered quite that loss in any peninsular battle. So it, it really stands out. Beresford was particularly shaken by the day's fighting. It had been a slogging match like no other. Despite the Allied victory, things had not gone well. So in the final analysis, had Beresford performed well? We, we seem to have got some disconnects going on here between Beresford and some of his staff. And bear in mind that 
Beresford's command is new. His staff is new. They haven't learned to work together yet. And there's certainly some activity during the battle where Beresford and his staff seem to be not quite on the same page. Um, we've got the French flank attack, which, you know, brilliant strategy by, by uh, Sewell. We've got Blake refusing to move and a lot of the Spanish infantry not being able to manoeuvre on the battle. We didn't actually pick this up when we talked about Stuart advancing with the second division. He wasn't given orders to attack. He decided to do that himself. So Beres had seen the second division attack without orders. Um, We've then seen Beresford riding off to try and find Hamilton's division, which wasn't where he left it, because the first ADC he sent couldn't find it. Um, Beresford's then gone off to find them. So he's down somewhere near Albuera and he turns around and Cole, who's got specific instructions not to move, is advancing into, into the right flank. So you look at it from Beresford's perspective, he is not having a good day. Now, so it sounds like there's a bit of a sort of command and control breakdown here. Well, it's something I'm wondering, and I, I'm, I'm saying no more than that. I think the issue here was that the, the visibility of the battlefield was, was so poor that how, how can you lose a division of 5,000 men? Now, I, I'm assuming none of these people are incompetent, so you have to assume the visibility was so poor that, that you just could not see where, where troops were. And you had to literally ride around the battlefield to find people. You couldn't stand on the hill and say, oh, there they are, we'll, we'll, we'll ride down and give them an order. And I think that's what was happening through a lot of this battle is there was, there was no visibility. So people were feeling their way around the battlefield. And that makes life difficult. And it also makes commanders very nervous. I think what is important is that Wellington stood by uh, Beresford. Wellington was said to Beresford, there is no, I have no doubt you've got the, be the better of Sult, and you should be justifiably proud of what has happened on the day. So, <clears throat> you know, he, he, Beresford was shocked. We, I reckon he had uh, PTSD, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. As a result of this, he was really shocked and he was depressed for weeks afterwards. I would stick my neck out and say Sewell lost Albuera rather than Beresford won Albuera. His, his advance to Albuera was brilliant. His movement around the right flank of the Allies was brilliant. And then they went to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would you leave 14,000 French troops at the bottom of a hill facing a much smaller number of allied troops and stand there in a firefight for four hours. Yeah. Particularly when you've got a superiority in cavalry. Yeah. I, I think it could have gone horribly wrong. If Wellington was there, would it have been any different? The problems wouldn't have changed. I, I think what Wellington brought to most battles, the same as what Napoleon brought to most battles. When he was there, there was nobody uh, arguing with him about who was in command. So Wellington might have made a difference, but he was still dealing with the same troops and the same problem. Uh, and yeah, it might have been better. And yeah, right, Wellington might have ended the day with less casualties. He would still have won the day. So the difference was there might have been less casualties, but you know, the, the casualties, the, the worst bit of the casualties at Albuera were caused by Stuart. Now, Stuart could have still done that stupid activity if Wellington was on the battlefield. So I, th I think what ifs are always a bit 
sort of unhelpful. I, I don't think the, the overall result of the day would have changed materially if Wellington was there. Wellington writes to Beresford, and it, it's very interesting, and I, I just, I've got this quote here somewhere. You could not be successful in such an action without a large loss, and we must make up our minds to affairs of this kind sometimes, or give up the game. You know, so he, he's very, you know, and I, I think uh, what Wellington also says to his other generals is, you know, leading on into 1812, 1813, you know, that some of you might be better generals, better, more talented strategists, but Beresford is the best man to ensure that the troops are fed and are there and he'll get everything in order. And he's, he's a wonderful administrator, effectively, you know, and in 1813, when the issue arises again about who should uh, take over if Wellington has to go to Catalonia, which was a distinct possibility in the autumn of 1813, he makes it very clear to the British government that it should be Beresford. And he, he you know, he has a, a battle on his hands with the Duke of York in particular. Um, in, in fact, I think uh, Liverpool, uh, I can't remember, Liverpool or Castlereagh, one of them supported Wellington, um, but he makes it very clear. And eventually the compromise is reached that Beresford if Wellington is incapacitated for any reason, whether he has to go to Catalonia or he's wounded or whatever it is, Beresford should take over on a temporary basis. Now, whether they'd ever allowed Beresford to take over on a temporary basis is another matter. But I just want to emphasize that as showing Wellington's view of Beresford. He still had, he retained confidence in him. And so there you have it. Question marks still remain over Beresford's performance at the battle, but he retained the support of Wellington and continued to prove himself a solid operator throughout the rest of the war. After the French withdrew from the battlefield of Albuera, Beresford returned to Badajoz to continue the siege. But despite the arrival of Wellington, it was quickly called off and the Allied army was forced to withdraw. The final reckoning for Badajoz is still to come, and that is the subject of next month's episode. If you enjoyed that episode, please subscribe and write a review. Mark and the two Marcuses are incredibly knowledgeable and well worth a follow on social media. I'll put the links in the description below. Next month, as I alluded to, we'll be looking at the sieges of Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz, a fascinating and bloody period of the war. You don't want to miss that.